It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. All right. I'll take Dan's question. Okay. I have a question about life insurance. I'm in the process of looking at life insurance as we speak. And I'm 33 years old, have a wife with three kids, and am looking at the options between term versus whole life versus adjustable life or variable life policies. Mm-hmm. And seem to get confused in dealing with the cash value life insurance policies and trying to determine whether or not that is a proper place to invest your money versus just buying term insurance. Well, life insurance is not an investment. Matter of fact, it's even uh, in the um, rules that uh, and the regulations governing insurance agents in North Carolina, they're not allowed to even ever call it an, an investment because indeed it's not. It's a transfer of risk. Even in the uh, cash value policies. Exactly. Exactly. The day you die, you lose that cash value. That's not an investment. Okay. Life insurance is a contract between you and an insurance company to pay somebody after you die. Okay. That's it. Simple. If you look at term insurance and the two options of term versus fixed length versus uh, annual renewable term, um, my impression is I think I need life insurance for about 21 years to get the children through college. Well, let's 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 walk through a few numbers real quick, Dan. Okay. You say you're 33. You've got a wife and three children. Uh, what's your income? Sixty-five. Sixty-five thousand. Is your wife working? No. Okay. Family income sixty-five thousand. You're the only wage earner. Children are what age? Uh, five, three, and zero. <laughs> zero. You got one on the way. Congratulations. Yeah, one on the way. Okay. Uh, five, three, and and zero. You've got an income of sixty-five thousand. What's the family living expenses? Uh, about forty-four per year. About forty-four thousand a year. So, if you were to die tomorrow, your wife would need to come up with about forty-four thousand a year of, of expenses minus the portion that you were responsible for, like the food and groceries, or your portion, and so on. Right. All right. Simplest way to go ahead and analyze this is to go ahead and on doing a needs analysis, and of course. In my office, I have a computer system and I do much more sophisticated needs analyses, but a simple way, take your $44,000 and divide by 7%. And what we're saying there is that assuming that you were to die tomorrow and she received an insurance policy and and came to a, a good financial advisor, a financial planner, and said, I have X amount of money uh, of insurance. Took that and invested it. It will give me 44000 What you end up with is $628,000 of insurance. Now, that's assuming that she could get 7% income on her investments. Uh, now, how about your work? Is there any uh, um, retirement plan coming to you through your with your employer? Yeah, I have, uh, have a retirement plan and then a 401k. All right. Uh, is there any insurance or survivor's benefit to her? Uh, nominal amount. All right. So on your retirement plan. Now, on the retirement plan. She has some survivor's benefits, but I don't, it's a typical pension plan. I don't know if that would start paying until, does she have to get to age 55 and a half or whatever to start collecting on those? In some of them, no. Sometimes there's a survivor's benefit, which kicks in immediately. But let's go to the value of the 401k and the pension. We'll take it the other way. Okay. How much do you have there? Uh, 401k is probably about 60000 60000 in the 401k, and how much in the other, in the pension? Uh, right now, the earning value would be about 1000 a year. All right, and there's not a lump sum option there, is there? Um, is a lump, there is a lump sum option. What's the lump sum value? Don't know that number. All right, you want to take that number and add it to the 60000 Okay. All right, what about your personal investment portfolio? What do you have there? About twenty five. Twenty five thousand. Anything else? 
All right. Other than house and things. Okay. We've, liquid. we've got a hundred that we've got $85,000 of investment assets at her, uh, at your death. And of course, some of it would be in a retirement plan and IRA rollovers where it would be. What would happen there is you say, well, that 85,000, that could go ahead and give me another five or six thousand dollars, fifty nine hundred dollars of income. Of course, I'd have to pay a little bit of a penalty, a ten percent penalty, but she could go ahead and do that. When you get down to that formula, I mean, when you use that formula and come back down to your dollar figure, you're going to end up, let's say, with somewhere around five hundred to six hundred thousand of insurance. Now, the question is, what kind of insurance? You want to get the cheapest type of insurance that will cover you for the longest length of time to let you accumulate to self-insure. Right. At your age, you can qualify for 20-year level term. Now, term insurance, of course, is the cheapest insurance there is, but the problem with it is every year it gets higher and higher. Right. And, of course, a whole life policy or a universal policy or a variable life policy, those premiums are much, much, much higher because you are building up cash value. Right. Well, the term insurance is the cheapest and the best for you, except for the fact it gets higher. And if they made an animal, which they do, called level term, which builds up no cash value at all, then that's the best of both worlds, assuming you'll be able to accumulate enough to be self-insured in that period of time. We want to find out, and again, we need to do a needs analysis, but you need to find out how much you can invest on a monthly basis into an investment program to support you and your wife during retirement, you and your wife during this period of 20 years, you and your wife, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in, investing yourself is better than taking advantage of the tax-free or tax-deferred investments that you can get through the insurance option. There is no tax-deferred investment. That's all a hype. It's like putting money in a bank account right. and then paying the bank every month to give you the right later on to borrow from yourself. I mean, that's absurd because here's what happens. The day you want to get that money out of that policy, yep. you borrow it. You know what happens if you die the next day? Out of your wife's death benefit, she's got to pay back that loan. Okay. So if you've got a $100,000 policy with, with a, with a $50,000 cash value, you borrow out that cash value, you die the next day, your wife doesn't get $100,000. She gets 50. I'm with you. So, no, you don't want to do that. Never look at insurance as an investment. It's not an investment. It is a transfer of risk, and you want to go ahead. Now, that's not to say there isn't a place for whole life insurance and universal life insurance and variable life insurance and so forth, but not because of the cash value, no. What we do in our office, we do a feasibility analysis. Financial independence feasibility. Right. Because, yes, that's the first thing. With the help of a financial planner, you can determine how many years it will take for you to become financially independent, meaning that you can live off of, if you chose, the income from your investment portfolio. At that point in time, then you're financially independent, and that depends on how much you're investing on a monthly basis between now and then. Yep. You probably should use a, a financial planner, and if yeah, well, you would like any further information, we'll be happy to um, you know, send you some. You can call us at the office. Okay. That number is 8727000, and that's in the Raleigh area. Okay, well, thanks for the information. All right, bye-bye. Thank you, Dan. Well, we have, because everybody knows who baby boomers are. Yes. And a lot of our listeners are baby boomers. Yes. But there is an interesting letter that I saw in print, a letter to the echo boomers. Now, who are the echo boomers? Well, the echo boomers, those are the children of the baby boomers. All right. So I'm guessing they're what? 19 to 35, 36, something 19 like that? 19 to 38. Okay. If you're listening out there and you are a an echo boomer, Uh, This was an interesting letter that was in print uh, because it pointed to a recent study that showed that U.S. adults who are under 35 spend, in an aggregate, 2% more than what they earn. Well, Uh, that's almost an impossible set of circumstances. (laughs) Certainly not sustainable. (laughs) And savings isn't the problem. Okay, what is? Well... It's our attitude towards stocks, apparently. Okay. So we've got young people who are not um, looking at it from probably the long-term perspective, but from what has recently happened. Yeah. Past generations didn't save much when they were young. Americans under 35 had a negative saving rate for most of the past two decades, but most 
generations haven't really started saving large sums until their 40s and 50s. We definitely see that. We know that. Yeah. We, we all, that's when people start getting serious. That's okay, right. Okay, I want to retire. What am I going to retire right. on? And they they see the big 5-0 maybe looming in front of them, and now they say, I better get serious. Right. I need a way to support myself when this job ends. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of things have changed because uh, companies are automatically enrolling employees in 401k plans now. And I'm betting most people who are out there uh, working for small to large companies have participated in a 401k plan. Yeah, a lot of people think 401k plans are just gifts. That's not really it. No, in the, not in at the all. old days, in the days of the early working years of the baby boomers, we had things called pensions right. where the employer put the money and you could figure that he Right, or you they, worked there for 20, 30 yeah, years. you're going to get a gold watch and you've got a nice pension at the end and everything. Those were called defined benefit plans, but they were employer paid for them. But this matter of the shift to a 401k, that's basically an arrangement in which, you know, Uncle Sam says, you're going to have to cover your own retirement. No more pensions. You can take it off of your paycheck and put it aside. Right. So a real plus and a minus on both sides. You get the control. You get the, the deferring of the taxable of that, that income. Right. But you also now have a huge responsibility to... Well, it's, it's not your... Yeah, it's your employer didn't do anything, maybe. If there's no match... If there's no match, they didn't put any dollars in. Okay. So, uh, for many people, retirement funds... Now, these 401ks, they represent the bulk of their investment portfolio. Yeah, and I'm finding a lot, um, at least with most of the people that we're meeting with, that a lot of these mutual funds are these target date funds. And there's some good fund companies out there, but um, really, most people should be staying away from them. Um, You know, when they invested on their own, they put 59% of their assets in cash, Bonds, 28% only in stock. That's what this survey showed. But this is directly counter to traditional long-term investment allocation advice, which is that the younger investors could take more risk, and therefore they should be having more put into stock or stock mutual funds and so forth because they wouldn't need the money for so long. Uh that's that's sort of sad to see what they're doing. Well, I think that's the focus of a lot of what's being written today is that if you've just been basing your experience of investing over the past, let's say, 10 years, you haven't seen a long enough time frame to see that stocks are absolutely where you should be. We have had the joy of watching so many middle class folks become middle class millionaires through the years. It's because they have had the magic of time. And time that's really what it is, time. Compounds. Right, so if you're if you're 19 to 38, you've got plenty of time in front of you. You've, even if you're 38, you've still got another 30 years if you are healthy, you know, as you get closer to retiring. So you have plenty of time to make stocks work and then produce a, a nice income for you. Have you seen the Lewis Financial Management website? It's easy to get to, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. John, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Uh, yeah, Doug, uh, I have some land that's highly appreciated that we're probably selling uh, in the next uh, short time, year or so. And I wonder if you would discuss uh, charitable remainder trust, uh, the pros and cons of putting that land in something like that. Uh, I'll be happy to. Just give me a, a couple of the specifics. Uh, John, uh, first of all, how old are you? I'm 59. 59 years old. And are you married or single? Married. Yes. Married. Do you have children? Yes, I do. Two. Two children. Approximately, what's the value of your estate? Well, uh, the land that we'll be selling will be approximately $750,000. All right. The land itself is $750,000. By the way, is the land owned individually by you or jointly you and your wife or by a corporation? Jointly. All right. Jointly with rights of survivorship. What about the rest of your estate? What's the total of your combined estate? Uh, Well, we have some other land that uh, we have a one-third interest in that uh, will not be selling right now, but later on, how interesting that would be approximately uh, 200,000. We have a house and lot that's probably uh, another 200,000. All right. And of course, then now, what about your investment portfolio and retirement plans? Zero. All right. No personal investments? 
No retirement plans? None to speak of. Very little amount. All right. So we're looking at just about pretty close to a million two in total estate before we do anything. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the basis? The basis for the listener's edification, if you already know, John, the basis is what you paid originally for the land that you want to sell. Well, this came to me through my family uh, as a gift, and it was in the family a long, long time, so it has a very low basis. All right. Now, again, for the edification of our listeners, you may already know this, John. If you received it through your family by inheritance, that's one basis. If you received it by gift, that's another basis. The part that we are selling was by gift. All right. That's the, the worst one. <laughs> the remainder that we be selling later was inherited. All right. The basis is what the original purchaser paid for it. And if it was given to you, then that basis carries over from the giver to you. I realize that. That's why I said about it. Right. So you would say what we're talking about, maybe just a negligible amount, ten or twenty thousand dollars. It probably was worth uh, fifty dollars an acre at the time. And how many acres? Uh, Thirty-four. Thirty-four acres. All right. So we have a very low basis. Have you made any improvements on the property at all? No. Okay. All right. So maybe we've got, let's say, five thousand dollars of basis, if you will, and seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of value. So if you go ahead and you sold it for seven hundred and fifty thousand. And you had to subtract the five thousand, you'd end up with seven hundred and forty-five thousand dollars of capital gain to report. So you'd have about one hundred and eighty-six thousand dollars that you'd have to pay in taxes. You'd end up with about five hundred sixty-four thousand dollars. That's choice number one. And of course, the purpose, since you have no investment portfolio, the purpose would be to go ahead and to move that into funds that would produce a retirement income for you and your wife. Is that correct? Correct. All right. So we can say in today's market at about a seven percent current yield. You might end up with about $39,000 of income per year on that $564,000 portfolio after you'd paid the taxes. In comes the solution, the charitable remainder unit trust. Our number in Raleigh is 8727000. That's USA 7000. Now, the charitable remainder unit trust is the most exciting and the most sophisticated, the most dynamic and the most flexible financial planning tool available today. But it is fraught with a lot of caveats, so you really need to know how to do it right or you don't end up with what you want. First of all, let's think of it conceptually, John. You can go ahead and establish a trust. The box. Right. It's like a box. That's right, Linda. It's just like a box. We set up a box, okay? It's got nothing in it. It's just a piece of paper that says that such and such a trust is created, and then you write the instructions for John and his wife. Right. Yeah. We set the we put a set of instructions in this box, in this trust, that says the trustee, that's the one who runs this trust, will do the following things. Now, we have to remember who are the entities involved here. First, we have the donor. Donor would be you and your wife. The donor is the one who gives something to this trust. All right. So you, the donor, are going to give the deed of this property to this trust. And there'll be a set of instructions that you put in this trust. The trust is also going to have a set of instructions that says, after you and your wife die, what's left in this trust will go to some nonprofit organization. It could be the uh, John and Nancy uh, um, uh, Nonprofit Foundation for the benefit of uh, underprivileged children. It could be for the church. It could be any type of nonprofit, could be university and so forth. But because one day, long time down the road, after you and your wife have died, because you will be making a gift, Uncle Sam considers that any sales occurring inside this trust are tax-free, just as if it was the charity itself making them today. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. So, Doug, essentially what you're saying is that we would take uh, possibly John's 34 acres and put that into the trust. That's right. right. That's Transfer right. Transfer that out of John and his wife's estate. Right. And put that in the box. Right. He, in the de trust. he deeds it over to the trust. Exactly. And he is making what's called a split interest gift. He is gifting down the road a future interest and a remainder interest. If we think in terms of chickens and eggs, chickens being the principal, eggs being the income, what comes off of the chickens, he's saying, I would like to give away my chickens, but not until after I and my wife have died. 
I'll keep all the eggs for the rest of our lifetime. John, are you currently employed? Uh, yes, I am. Okay. And, and when are you thinking of retiring? Uh, maybe five years. Okay. That works beautifully because yeah, we have excellent. five years. Yes. yes. Okay, let's go one step further now. He says in his trust document that he will keep, you, John, will keep all of the income that's generated inside this trust. And you're agreeing to give away the remainder after you and your wife have died. Okay, any problems so far? No, I understand that. All right. Now, because it's a future interest going to a charitable institution, the entire land worth $750,000 inside the trust can be sold to your buyer for $750,000. Now we've got $750,000 of cash and no taxes to pay, and it's inside the trust. And we go ahead, even if we invest that at the same 7%, we've now got $53,000 a year income coming to you and your wife instead of 39000 a year income doing it the other way. Now, the key is who runs the show? Who is the trustee? The trustee should be you. You want to make sure that you are the trustee. If you do it through one of the universities here in town or uh, the Cancer Foundation or any charity you want, they will offer you the same arrangement, but they say we will be the trustee. And that type of charitable remainder trust I do not like. Because obviously, you've got a long time for you and your wife to live, and you want to be controlling the investments that happen inside the trust with this $750,000, right? Right. All right. So now what we've done, we've preserved principal, so we've got a much bigger income stream coming to you. Okay. Now, the question, of course, comes, what happens after the two of you die? After the two of you die, then the principal, whatever's left in this charitable trust, will go to any a nonprofit institution, charity, or it can go to a foundation which can be directed by your children. But the principal will not go directly to your children. So in effect, this may or may not be a concern to you, but in effect, this portion has been, you have disinherited your children of this amount. My case, it is a big concern. All right, it's a big concern. Therefore, what we want to do next is we want to go ahead and we want to establish a second trust. That's called the Wealth Replacement Trust. That replaces the wealth that you have moved from your estate. And what you do there, of course, if you're going to put in $750,000 of property into your trust, then you want to buy, you want to set up another trust that owns a $750,000 life insurance policy. Now, this life insurance policy should be a second to die policy. The second to die policies are cheaper than buying it individually, which means that at the time that after you and your wife have passed away, when your children would have received the estate, instead of getting what's in the trust, the first trust, they get the $750,000 insurance that's in the second trust. Because you are uh, making a future gift, you get a tax deduction today where you could easily accumulate two, three, four, five million dollars during your lifetime in this charitable trust have a larger and larger income stream coming out of it and be able to lump dip in and take out very large hunks to turn around and gift to your children. You use a small amount of that income to pay for the premium over in the insurance policy, so it's cost you nothing. Do you have any idea what a, what a annual rate would be on that insurance policy? I would really have to go ahead and, and, and look at some tables. It would not be that expensive. We would want to shop around. Whenever I do these, I always look for the cheapest I can get for a client because the goal is really not to build up a lot of cash value in an insurance policy like this, right? Right. The goal is really to pass $750,000 to my kids after my wife and I die, but to give us a bigger and bigger retirement plan inside. Right. Then, of course, the whole key is be your own trustee, work with an investment advisor who is an expert because you and he together will be handling all the monies inside of this thing, and you can have a win-win-win situation. And then after you've died, You'd like it very possibly to go to a charitable foundation where it can continue to live forever, the foundation's money, and just the income from that can be sprinkled and your children can be, you know, advising, give to this charity, give to this charity, give to that charity and so forth. And they also got their whole inheritance. The equation is easy enough, right, Doug? It works, but you have to, you have to work with someone that's qualified and able to help you run the numbers and oversee and you need an administrator exactly an administrator who will go ahead and administer a self-trusted trust 
John, if you would like some more information on this, mm-hmm. I'll be happy to either send you some information or discuss it with you further. And you can call me at the office yeah, here in Raleigh, and the number is 872-7000. That's USA 7000, and I'll be happy to do what I can to answer your questions. All right. I appreciate it. I'll, All right. I'll be getting in touch. Have I answered everything for this evening, uh, John? Yes, yes. I just wanted uh, about what you, what you gave, and I'd like to talk to you further about it. All right. It. Thank you. Thank you for calling, John. Bye-bye now. I saw another article along that line of surprises about a big house leading to the poor house. Did you happen to catch that article? I did, because once you've paid for your house and you've decided uh, on that price, you have lots to consider, like what it's going to cost you for the rest of owning that house. Yeah, and this is a crucial issue for anybody looking ahead to retirement. The more expensive your home, the more of a drain it's going to be in terms of property taxes, maintenance, homeowner's insurance, and more. Yeah, suppose you own a home that, in addition to the mortgage payment, costs $1,000 a month. So we've got mortgage payment plus $1,000 a month. And then you get, let's say, a nice pay raise at work. And you trade up or you decide to trade up to a larger house, which has doubled the monthly expenses. Yeah, and a lot of people do that. I watch young people getting a bigger and bigger house when they get that pay raise. Well, what they don't realize is if you stay in the larger house during retirement, then you're going to need to come up with $2,000 a month. That's $24,000 a year. And if you say how much using a 4% withdrawal rate, how much portfolio does that mean? That means you've got to have $600,000 of investments. To produce $24,000 of living expense need. And that's not even the expenses. That's just for that house. That's right. So $600,000 of your investments is used just for that. On the other hand, if you'd kept that $300,000 house, oh my, uh, you have really uh, kept yourself far, far down. And that's right. Many of our listeners will know you've always been an advocate of a modest home. Right. It just makes sense, but more importantly, it makes sense in, reti- in, more, it makes sense in retirement years. A large house means higher cost in retirement, and it's going to be more difficult to save while you're working. And that's usually where people, by the time they get to us, they're either thinking, well, I might be in my 40s or 50s, and I'm planning on how I'm going to pay for um, my own, how I'm going to make a li- how I'm going to retire one day. That's right. And one of those big things is, well, if I'm going to retire and I need an income, what's the biggest expense usually on the financial statement or cash flow? Financial expenses that are associated with your house. Yeah, we have all these years, we have been very careful in our office to explain a couple of terms. On a financial statement, you only have two important terms, right? Assets and liabilities. And assets are things you own and liabilities are oh assets are what you own and liabilities are what you owe but then assets break into only two kinds of assets yeah here we've got investment assets and we've got uh use assets and a home although that that nice real estate broker who sold you the home might be calling it an investment forget that it is not an investment it is a use asset. That's right. An investment asset is something that you live off of. It produces income for you and so forth. So this matter of a use asset is crucial in looking at the home. And so uh, it's a tough point to try and tell people to keep your housing down low and especially think about downsizing when you retire. That's right. That's what we've been doing for all these years. That's right. Well, you know, another thing that many people who are um, uh, retirees might be thinking about in regard to you know, cash flow is when you do need to get a mortgage, when you do need to show proof of an income as a retiree, this opens up a whole new conversation. It's a shock. So a lot of clients have asked me, well, I'm retired. I've got a few million dollars in my investment portfolio. I even receive an income from my portfolio. And my mortgage is paid off. But does it make sense maybe to go ahead and get a new mortgage and, you know, get that money out and invest it in everything? Or I want to buy a house at the beach and I need to, I don't want to pay cash. I'd like to mortgage. So here you are with an investment portfolio that might say, you know, you have two, three, four, five, ten million dollars, but you don't have a paycheck anymore. So how do you qualify for things like, well, let's just pick one for the sake of time. How about jumbo mortgages? You know, mortgages for houses that would be more expensive than 400,000. 
Well, here, a retiree, like any other borrower, is going to have to meet a 43% debt-to-income ratio mandated by the federal mortgage rules. This number is going to reflect the borrower's percentage of monthly debt payments relative to monthly income. Well, therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem. I can think of one client who has uh, multi-millions in investments and was turned down for a small mortgage because the client couldn't prove income. Now, here's where working with a financial planner can really be useful because if you can produce a reoccurring monthly income stream from a retirement account and you do this on a regular basis, you start helping yourself be able to prove to a lender or to uh, someone in that area that you have reoccurring monthly income. That's right. So when we talk, go ahead. But we were able to make it work for the particular client by doing just what you said. But no matter how much we talked to the bank and wrote letters and everything, the client didn't have income, just had wealth. And that's why I think the first step for any retiree or any person who's approaching retirement, they need a certified financial advisor, financial planner, because the advisor then can look at the whole overall financial picture and advise whether it's wise to pay cash, whether it's to borrow and buying this new home at the beach or the mountains and so on. But... By trying to do it alone, you're going to bump your head up against the same walls that everybody else is finding out. Wealth with um, without an income can produce a lot of hurdles that you have to get over that may or may not have been there the last time you um, needed to buy something. Have you seen the Lewis Financial Management website? It's easy to get to. DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Well, you know, there was an article that talked about taxes when a spouse dies, and this is something that a lot of people don't talk about, but it intrigued me because I know having had so many situations in our office with clients who have lost a spouse that uh, planning for taxes when a spouse dies is not something that jumps right into the forefront. No, it's usually one of the last things. It's tough enough when a spouse dies, but at tax time, the survivor should prepare for another blow, and that's a bigger tax tab known as the widow's penalty. Yeah, all of a a sudden now you're one versus having been a twosome. Yes, to all of our listeners out there who have lost a spouse and you've gone through this devastating situation where you've lost your sweetheart, whether it's through health issues, accidents, or just uh, age. But when you become a widow or a widower, widower, there's a penalty, right? A higher tax bite. That's exactly right, Linda. When a spouse dies, the survivor's income could drop somewhat, but the tax bracket thresholds for single filers are low relative to thresholds for joint filers. A single person goes into the tax brackets, the higher tax brackets, faster than a joint filer. And all of a sudden, it's easy to get an increase in taxes. Yeah, and this is something people don't generally um, you know, expect. So there's a tax hit on uh, benefits. The widow's penalty has the most impact on retired taxpayers with modest incomes. After a spouse's death, there's a greater likelihood that a higher percentage of the survivor's Social Security benefits will be subject to tax. Yeah, because in some of our clients, we see that they're, all of their Social Security, the majority of it is not taxed. But as soon as you move into another tax bracket, then you're, you're subject to possibly paying tax on the Social Security also. All of this, of course, is what we do day in and day out in our office. That's right. And I... Helping people as you change through, you know, well, you know, situation. And this may be a good time to bring it up. Many of our uh, our peers and even our competitors out there who call themselves financial planners are not really doing financial planning as much as money management. They're managing investment portfolios, but true comprehensive financial planning is tax planning as well as estate planning, as well as money management. That's right. So in our practice, we actually are running tax projections for clients throughout the year, as well as looking at the investment side, the money management side, the investment portfolios, and so forth. True financial planning should include tax planning, not just what the accountant does at the end of the year. That's tax accounting for what you've already done. 
much more than accounting for what you did. You want to be planning for what you're going to do. That's right. Exactly. And especially if you're getting closer to the retirement uh, target, whether it's, you know, retiring at 55 because you can. That's right. Or uh, planning while you're still working and, you know, your income is high if you're planning on 65. And then there are those who really won't retire until they're 70 or 72 because they want to and they can, right? That's right. So people's uh, goals and desires are different. But like Doug always says, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Whatever your questions are about your situation, write them down. Call a financial planner. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Oh, Tom, this is Doug Lewis, and how can I help you this evening? Hey, Doug. How are you? All right. question is, I have uh, three small companies that I own a third to a half in each one, uh-huh. and two of them are two years old and uh, generate uh, 120000 a year profit each. The other one is brand new and where I'm expecting a loss. I just wanted to know if, I, if you think I should switch to, if there's any benefit in switching from an S-Corp to a C-Corp for the two that are making profit. All right, let's, uh, let's see if we can get a better picture. Let's take them. Company number A, Uh you own a third of that one. Right. And that's, uh, you own a third, Uh and that's generating 120,000 a year profit. Right. All right, so that's plus 120,000. All right. Company B, same thing. You own a third, and that one's giving you another 120,000. Right. Company C, you own a third of that one. Right. And that one's giving you a loss. The expected loss this year, yeah. A loss of how much? Um, maybe fifteen, twenty thousand. All right. Why are they S corporations now? Um, because our accountant really, I don't know. They, our accountants really weren't sure which way to go, and they said that the S corporations we'd only be taxed individually, not corporate and individually. Right. Because our goal pull pull cash out. Your goal is to pull the tax, the cash out. Right. I see. And how old are you? 32. 32 years old. Are the companies long-range companies? Are there are there are there prospects good? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I've 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 owned similar companies for the last seven years. And All right, on company A, what kind of salary are you taking? Uh, forty-two thousand a year. All right, you're getting forty-two thousand on company A, plus you're getting one third of the hundred and twenty profit. Right. Okay. Plus a third of that. So there's forty thousand. All right, Company B, are you? What's your salary there? Um, uh, just twelve thousand. You're taking twelve thousand salary out of that one, uh-huh. and you're being uh, no, you're, third of one hundred twenty, and you're getting the other forty thousand there as your S corp earnings. Uh-huh. And Company C, are you taking a salary there? Zero. No salary, and it's also losing money. Right. Well. The advantages and the disadvantages of the C-Corporation, it seems to me that, let me ask you one thing about your own personal situation that just occurred to me. What about your wife? Is your wife working? Yeah, she takes a uh, 28000 a year salary out of Corporation A. All right, so she's getting 28000 That's the wife. So from Corporation A, your family is taking home 70000 plus another 40000 Right. That's a hundred and ten thousand dollars that you're getting there. Right. Uh, you know, there is one benefit that's allowed to you as a C corporation that may or may not that you may or may not be aware of that an S corporation does not have. What's that? Well, an S corporation, as your accountant advised you, passes through all of the income directly to you on your own tax return. And that's true. If the if if it's if it's losing money, then that will work nicely because it can go ahead and offset other income. On the other hand, a C corporation can do something that an S corporation cannot do, and that's shelter income. Mm-hmm. From the vantage point of wanting to reduce taxes, the S corporation is hurting you. Uh-huh. You see what I'm saying? All of, in other words, your wife's twenty eight thousand plus your forty two thousand. That's seventy. 
plus the 40 of uh, S Corp earnings, that's 110, mm-hmm. plus the 12 from, that's 122, plus the 40, that's 162. Is your wife, uh, all right, so you've got $162,000 that's flowing through that you're paying taxes on. On that. <laughs> the, uh, the $15,000 loss from Corporation C, you're only getting a third of that, right? Right. So, big deal, whoopee. Yeah. You know, you get a you get a negative five thousand to offset one hundred and seventy thousand. Uh-huh. Uh, I would think a better way to approach it would be to look at it from the viewpoint of what salary you want, and then let the corporations go ahead and shelter income inside the corporations. A C corporation can purchase tax shelter investments uh-huh. and can reduce their taxes the old way of tax shelter investments. Okay, I got you. You see what I'm saying? So if your goal is to reduce taxes, then you need to hit it hard, and that means go the route of a C corporation. Mm -hmm. If your goal is anything other than reducing taxes, forget about it. Stay with the S corporation, pay the taxes, and let it come and and let it flow through to you. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, it helps a lot. All right, well, I'm glad you called. And if you have any other questions, you want to go ahead and bring some uh, material into the office, I can work some of the numbers on both sides for you. Our office number during the week is 872-7000, 872-7000. And, Tom, it's probably important for you to write down some of these questions, uh-huh. correct? Because yeah. there's probably a number of questions on the on the corporation side, on the business side, how to you know, that, that you have. And then there may be some questions on your personal side, uh-huh. you know, on the estate side, uh, but on your on your pers- personal side. But call the office at 872-7000 if you'd like, and we can provide more information. Good deal. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling, Tom. Uh, bye-bye. Well, Doug, there are a lot of people out there who are wondering um, and writing in or asking us frequently, what are some simple tips or rules that help people who already have? Because we talk about people who have... Um, applied good principles and become middle-class millionaires. These are typically folks who uh, end up in our office asking us questions and becoming longtime clients. And a lot of those people implemented a lot of good um, habits along the way. So I thought I would ask you tonight, you know, what are what are some things that people can do to help themselves save and invest? Because so many people are living paycheck to paycheck, but we know discipline and consistency and just doing a few simple things will really help people out. Well, I would say first, whenever you get a raise, don't spend it. Okay. If you're making a certain amount of money and you're used to a certain take-home pay, when you get a raise, that money should be invested. Invest that raise. Very good. Okay. Unfortunately, most people just take that amount and find another way to spend it, such as buying a car, going to Starbucks more often, or taking more vacations. But the goal is to keep life the same and invest the difference. Okay. Very good. Now, there's another thing you could do. Refinancing your home mortgage can be a savings if you do it each time, well, let me say it this way. If each time that you refinance to a lower rate, then take that extra savings and invest that amount also. You know, you might begin saving $500 a month or 6000 a year. Again, most people would find other uses for that newfound cash, but make it a part of the investment portfolio. Very good advice. Now, you know, I was I was thinking recently about a client of mine and, you know, you said, Deborah, middle-class millionaires. And yes. I would say probably mm, maybe 75% of our clients would fall into that category. And I was thinking of one. I can't mention his name, obviously, on the air. But he gave me a book to read that he wrote. Uh, and it was a precious book. You know, a lot of us, when we get to be retirement age, what do we do? We write books, right? Yeah, so, right. So he wrote about, I want to read you something that okay. I found in this book. He says, I can remember, this is when he's back when a little boy now. Okay, he's already, in, he's in his late 60s, but he's writing this book. He says, I can remember having to shovel a path to the hen house after a big snowstorm before going to school. Now, either we got more snow back then or else I wasn't very tall because I had to throw the snow over a bank higher than my head. In the summer, one of my chores was to clean the chicken coop. This involved cleaning the manure off the the roost, 
that had hardened over the past year. You know what manure is? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in North Carolina. (laughs) Okay. So he says, not an easy task. One year, our neighbor, Ruth Foote, hired me to clean her chicken coop because she couldn't get her son to do it. I don't remember how much she paid me, but it turned out to be a bad deal on my part because the coop hadn't been cleaned in several years and it took me two weeks to clean it. I had to soak the manure with a water hose because it was hardened like cement. That, of course, made one heck of a mess and I created a lot of chicken mud. That was not easy to clean up, but I finally finished the job and I got paid. Now, some of the money I had to put into a savings account at the bank. That was the rule that my mom and dad had. Always save a portion of your earnings. Wow. This included money earned mowing lawns, splitting and piling wood for Mrs. Parison at her tavern two houses away. So this client of mine who has now been with us for many years, this was one of his early habits. Here's another page. Listen to this. Mom and dad paid us $25 each to paint the barn, and it took us all summer to complete it. It just wasn't a matter of slapping some paint on the barn. We had to scrape the old flaking paint off first. Mom was a stickler for that. When it came to painting to painting the cupola on top of the barn, we had to tie a rope around my waist and put it over the cupola. I would then dangle on the barn roof until the painting was complete. Wow. I admit it now. Mom has passed now that mom now that mom has passed away. I didn't scrape the cupola very well. I just slapped the paint on. Mom couldn't tell from the ground. And she couldn't climb up there to check. Nobody else was dumb enough to put a rope around their waist and dangle on the roof. So John said he was afraid to that John's his brother, and I was the youngest, so I got overruled, and I got to be the dangalee. Apparently, we did a pretty good job because to this day the barn hasn't been repainted. The money we earned for painting the barn had to be put into our savings account at the bank. We were allowed to take $5 out to go to the Rutland State Fair in Vermont in the fall. Wow. Now, that's a middle-class millionaire writing about how he was raised. Right. And so a lot of people want to know, well, how do I become a middle-class millionaire? Right. It's what you said, Deborah. It's habits. Right. These habits of pay yourself first. Mm -hmm. Here, he was taught that when he was six years old. Mm -hmm. Whatever you earn... You go ahead and put some of it aside Mm -hmm. for your future. That's right. And a lot of it is really just looking at um, the the income or expenses that you have. And then when there is a little extra, seeing that as, wow, it's a little extra for me to contribute to my future. It's not for me to continue living without. It's for me to contribute to my future. So when that raise comes, when that um, refinancing of the mortgage or when other expenses go down, what we spend a lot of time with our clients doing is saying, well, wow, we can capture a little more of that income on a monthly basis. So if the mortgage goes down by even just $100, that's an extra $100 you can add to your own investment plan. So the more you're contributing and the more you're adding, you get this real sense of, I'm really making a difference in my financial future. Exactly. And that's where the ownership comes from. Yeah, disciplines are always the key that we put into our clients, whether it's the discipline when you're in the earning stage, whether it's the discipline when you're in the retirement stage, when you're financially independent, the disciplines need to be brought there. And that's what our clients so often pay us for, to keep them reminded about the disciplines. They're the most important thing to enjoy all of the freedom of becoming and of being what we call middle-class millionaires. These are folks that have middle-class values, they've accumulated their wealth because of the disciplines um you know i as you as you both were speaking i i was just reflecting that you know habits will bring you a long way and um whereas people are so used in this used to in this day and time when they have it they spend it and sometimes just waiting you know delaying that gratification and being disciplined and having that habit of saving something will happen in the future but what's important is that if you're out there and you're listening this evening and you've had considerations about whether or not you need to do financial planning Mm -hmm. put it on your checklist to call a financial planner if not us somebody else but make it a priority 
to address your financial planning questions. That's right. Develop a plan. Make something happen. It's the it's the actions that make you look back and feel so good. Because that's how you can arrive at the goal of financial independence. Have you seen the Lewis Financial Management website? It's easy to get to. DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. All right. Let's take Mary's call. Mary, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? If you have had different employers and you have money that you can get in a lump sum from your pension plan and right. put in your 401k, can you just put that directly in there without any tax ramifications? How does that work? How old are you, Mary? 50. All right. How much is in the pension plan of the previous employer? Uh, it's about $50,000. It was fully funded by the employer? Correct. All right, so you're 100% vested. It's your money? Right. In the old plan? Right. If the 401k lets you, you can roll it from the old pension into your present 401k. The IRS lets you. All right. However, I don't let you. I think that's a stupid thing to do. All okay. Right? So let me tell you what I think you should do. Okay. Number one, you should take it away from the old employer. Number two, do not put it into the new employer. What you want to do, in my opinion, is you want to set up an IRA rollover account and roll it from the old pension into an IRA rollover account Mm -hmm. because that will give you more flexibility, more control, less constraints, and more investment selections. You can go into basically any in mutual funds you want in the United States and many, many partnerships. You've got lots of choices where if you just go straight into your present 401k plan, you've only got the choices they've got. You're right. limited. You right. see what I mean? The that yeah. they offer. Uh-huh. Furthermore, you can't access it later on if you need to get to it for an emergency. I see. Okay. What's the size of the rest of your investment portfolio, Mary? About 250000 And is that in personal money? Personal. All right. If you've got two fifty over there, then you might pick two or three different funds once you roll this to an IRA mm-hmm. and maybe pick maybe three fifteen thousands or two twenty fives for this money to be rolled into. Okay. And it should be part of an overall asset allocation model. The overall asset allocation model should encompass both the two fifty and this fifty. So you've got a balance between debt funds and equity funds, balanced funds, growth funds, growth and income funds and so forth. Thank you very much. All right, take care Mary and if we can be of further assistance you just call us at the office at nine one nine 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Well, that's all the money matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 6.05 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.